My name is Leslie McSpadden. My son is Michael Brown. Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin. Gwen Carr. I am the mother of Eric Gardner. Geneva Reedville, the mother of Sandra Bland. That day, I will never forget. I never thought that I would be in this position. And she was, was uh, unlawfully stopped. We see these different stories. We need and to let our lives. I live the pain every day. We're all just moms. Our leaders need to be accountable. I can't remember a day that I have been free from the memory of Emmett's death. It started with the voice of Mamie Till Mobley. Her son, Emmett, was only 14 years old when he was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered. His death changed the course of her life and forced America to contend with its demons. In the face of profound loss, she became an alchemist, transforming her pain into purpose. She was thrust into a life of activism and accepted the assignment with grace and courage. We remember her name because of what others did to her son, but we often forget what she did for others. I'm Leah wright I'm an author and a historian. This series is about who Mamie Till Mobley was before her son, a hopeful girl who lived under the watchful eye of her mother. And it's about who she would become, a catalyst for the civil rights movement and a lighthouse for the grieving mothers who would come after her. From ABC Audio, this is Reclaimed. The story of Mamie Till Mobley. Episode 1, Innocence. When Mamie arrived at the hospital, she didn't know what to expect. In her memoir, she wrote her contractions were growing more intense. So her mother, Alma, had driven her to Cook County Hospital. It was a public hospital in 1940 Chicago, which meant Black people were allowed to receive care there, but not too much. Mamie was 19 years old at the time. She wrote in her memoir that she was put into a room with another pregnant woman who was cursing up a storm. The woman cursed that man, the one who had done this to her body. She promised Mamie she would soon understand how she felt. And later, Mamie did. The pains of being a mother and a wife. The wife of a man whose traumas were deeper than the Mississippi River. As the contractions got worse, she was surprised by the pain. She wondered why her mother hadn't warned her. Alma was a nurturer who cared deeply for her daughter. But part of that care was hiding the details, shielding her. In so much of Mamie's life, she received the test before the lesson. Alma checked on her repeatedly while she was in the hospital. When she asked her daughter if her water broke, she said she thought it had, but the nurses didn't seem to care. Alma said that was unacceptable. She called for assistance, and when the nurses and doctor arrived... Her daughter was indeed ready for delivery, but it wouldn't be an easy one. 
Emmett was a breech berth. He was positioned the wrong way. He arrived with his neck, knee, and wrist caught in the umbilical cord. The forceps used during delivery left bruises on his head. His tiny body looked contorted. But Mamie thought he was the most precious thing she had ever seen. Mamie spent 48 hours in labor. It's not clear why, but her husband, Louis Till, wasn't there for their son's birth. But that didn't mean Mamie was alone. She had Alma and she had the rest of her family, like her younger cousin, Thelma Wright, who was at church when Emmett was born. My aunt said, you know what? I'm going to run to the phone and call Cook County Hospital and see what Mamie had. So she came back, whispered, said, Mamie had a boy. Some believe that a breech birth means that the baby isn't quite ready for the world. But in the case of Emmett, maybe it was the other way around. There had been complications due to the breech birth, and doctors thought Emmett wouldn't be able to walk. They wanted to commit him to a home for children with special needs, but his mother refused the suggestion. Emmett showed great improvement, and after a month of going back and forth to the hospital for care, he and Mamie finally settled in at home. Home was Illinois. That's where Mamie's family had put down new roots. When she was two years old, they moved from Mississippi to the Chicago area during what would later become known as the Great Migration. According to the National Archives, over six million Black Southerners relocated to the North, and Chicago attracted over half a million of them. Here's Ollie Gordon, one of Emmett's cousins. That was giving them a different type of life. They had inspiration, they could get a job, uh, they could get a, an apartment or possibly a home, and they could clothe their children and send them to an appropriate school. It wasn't perfect. Nowhere in the United States was for Black people. But Chicago provided opportunity, and freedom has a way of breeding greatness. Change agents, great thinkers, and a bustling art and music scene emerged. Music legends like Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole, and Mahalia Jackson all called Chicago home. And the living is Most Black people in Chicago work domestic or blue-collar jobs. Those didn't pay much, but they provided a reliable stream of income that sustained families. And those families needed businesses that would serve them. Black-owned barbershops, pharmacies, and clothing stores sprung up. A new generation of Black entrepreneurs was born. People like John Johnson, who founded Ebony Magazine, and George Johnson, whose company made Afrosheen. Some of the people who came during the Great Migration would lay the groundwork for greatness in the future. Like Fraser Robinson, who traveled to Chicago looking for better opportunities. He worked odd jobs before landing at the post office, something he did for 30 years. His granddaughter would benefit from his hard work and ultimately become 
First Lady of the United States. Uh, I, I write in my book about my grandfather. We called him Dandy. And Dandy's family was from Georgetown, South Carolina. Michelle Obama has often shared stories about her upbringing in Chicago and her family's migration to the city. Both of her grandfathers relocated there from the South. That was the story of of Black men of of that era. Uh, It didn't matter what your abilities were. Uh, You were limited because of your race. Uh, So leaving the South for them was a chance at an opportunity to be more than what they thought they could be. This was a chance to live out their dreams, display their brilliance, provide for their families. It was the land of milk and honey, but not everything was sweet. I think both of my grandfathers didn't achieve what they could have been in in the North. When they came to Chicago, they found just another form of racism. Many unions kept Black workers out, and racism was still rampant. In every aspect of life, from where they could live, where they could work, how they were treated by police, Black people were marginalized. And the city was segregated, so many Black people only felt safe in their own community, the south side of Chicago. If you traveled outside of it, you know, if you went into the wrong area, if you went into the wrong neighborhood, you were at risk. All of these factors led to Chicago becoming a hotbed for organizing. Activism and calls for political involvement were getting louder, spawning movements throughout the city. Chicago was a political animal. It was a force. It was all happening on the south side of Chicago. But about 15 miles outside of Chicago, where Mamie grew up, things were much quieter. She lived in a small town called Summit. Locals called it Argo, though named after the cornstarch manufacturer that built a plant there. By 16, most young Black girls in her town dropped out of school to get married. But Mamie's mother wanted more for her, and Alma knew that there were certain freedoms that only an education could provide. Ollie Gordon, Emmett's cousin, remembers this. We were always told uh, about education and that we should get an education because that was the means in which we would be able to prosper and achieve goals and have a better life. Mamie attended a predominantly white high school. She was the first Black student to make the honor roll and just the fourth to graduate. But Alma had another reason for pushing her daughter academically. Focusing on school kept Mamie's head down in the books. The rest of the time, Alma made sure her head was up in the clouds. She did her best to keep her daughter away from the difficult or complicated things in life. And so, there was a kind of innocence about Mamie. Alma was a true believer of the gospel. She even helped establish the Argo Temple Church of God in Christ and recruited new members who migrated from Mississippi. In her memoir, Mamie said if her mother had been a man, she would have been known as the godfather of Argo. Alma was a mother in the church. She played a pivotal role as far as uh, 
the the week-to-week um, business of the church when there were families uh, in need. There was always um, someone there to make sure that there was food or whatever was necessary for the young children and the mothers. So not only did they teach Sunday school and teach values, they also was in somewhat involved with the everyday life of many of the parishioners. That devotion to God made a real impact on her daughter. During a 2002 interview with ABC News, Mamie explained how Alma's faith informed hers. She impressed upon me the importance of doing the right thing. Because if you don't, when you meet it again, you won't be able to. It won't be as simple. It will have uh, enlarged itself and it will be something you cannot handle. So don't tell lies. And I really believe that my mother could look in my eyes and see through the back of my head because she told me so. And I never was able to lie to her because if I tried, she knew right away that I was lying. My face would reflect it. Alma commanded respect from everyone. The rules in the house were strict and there were consequences for not following them. She ruled her household with an iron fist but she loved with the same vigor. Love was behind the order, not law. When Aunt Alma spoke, you listened and you heeded. You did what Aunt Alma told you to do. Now, the way she said it was as sweet as can be. You wanted to do it because Aunt Alma asked you to. That's Amos Smith, Mamie's cousin. He remembers how clear it was. Even though Alma was tough on Mamie, she had a soft spot for her only child. Mamie was her daughter. Mamie was the only one that could get away with anything, okay? That's how it was. And it was all love. It really was. But by the time she was 18, Mamie discovered a different kind of love. She was still living under Alma's roof, and she was considered a good girl. So it almost made sense for her to fall for the so-called bad boy. In this case, the bad boy was Lewis Till. Lewis had recently moved to Argo to work at the cornstarch plant. Mamie thought he was dashing. He was different from the experience she had had uh, during the early part of her life and intrigued her. That's Chris Benson. He's the co-author of Mamie's memoir, Death of Innocence. So he was quite aggressive in pursuing uh, a relationship with her and uh, asked her out. Their first few dates only amounted to sitting on her mother's porch and talking. Alma wasn't so sure about Louis, but she ultimately gave him permission to take Mamie on a real date. So Mamie and Louis headed over to Berg's drugstore, which was owned by a white man. Back in the 1940s, drugstores didn't just sell toothpaste and cough syrup. They were places to sit down and have a soda pop or an ice cream cone. Lewis wanted to buy his date a banana split. She'd never had one before. But they would have to enjoy their splits somewhere else. Berg's was still segregated at the time, and black customers weren't allowed to eat inside. But Lewis didn't follow rules. 
the owner of the store came over to Lewis and Mamie while they were seated in the booth and told them that they were not allowed to do that. Lewis took a stand, literally by standing up and facing the drugstore owner and saying that they were going to stay there. And he allowed them to stay. The owner wasn't the only person who noticed what was going on. Other Black residents passed by and saw the young couple sitting in the booth. So they started doing the same. And after that first date, Bird's Drugstore was, for all intents and purposes, desegregated. That first date provided a crucial lesson for Mamie, one that would stay with her. Mamie's experience with Lewis Till at the drugstore was certainly an important moment in establishing Lewis Till as a strong person who could do all the things that she probably saw as important in a relationship with a man. But it also set in motion, I think, her consciousness, her, the development of her consciousness that things could happen if you took a stand in life. She would learn much more from Lewis, and not all of it was good. Lewis Till might have intrigued her as this tough guy from the neighborhood, but there is a downside to that, and she discovered that he also could be abusive. Eventually, she got a protective order against Lewis. She and Emmett, who was barely a toddler, moved back in with Alma, she left her innocence behind in that apartment she once shared with Lewis. Something had changed in Mamie. Before this moment, she was still a child, even though she was already a mother. But on this day, the day she stood up to her man, she became a woman. Mamie came from a family of strong women. She saw great strength in her mother. Mamie Till Mobley was not going to stay there in, a, in an abusive relationship. Lewis had a much harder time letting go. Mamie wrote that he kept violating the protective order. He would confront her in the street, trying to make a case that she should take him back. So they went to court, and the judge gave Lewis a choice. He could either go to jail or join the army. Lewis chose the latter. Over the next few years... Mamie received monthly payments from Lewis in Italy, where he was stationed. But one day, the payments stopped. Mamie would get a telegram. Lewis had been killed. The message didn't say much, except that his death involved willful misconduct. Ultimately, the army would send back some of Lewis's personal belongings, including a silver ring, the initials LT and the date May 25th, 1943 were inscribed on it. Mamie knew she would give the ring to Emmett one day. What she didn't know was the profound way Lewis's ring and the circumstances of his death would come into play years later. Lewis wouldn't be the only man in her life. She married a man named Pink Bradley when she was 30 years old. But soon after, she said things went downhill. Pink would work during the week and disappear on the weekends. One day, Mamie caught him planning a date with another woman. So she threw his clothes out of the second floor window and changed the locks. 
Mamie phrased it like this. He had made his move, and he might as well just keep on moving. Helping him out was the least I could do. Later, Mamie would find not only love, but a companion for life, a man named Jean Mobley. But for now, it was just her and Emmett. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you'd do with an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? We often find ourselves wishing for more time, but the real question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The key to squeezing that special thing into your schedule is knowing what's truly important to you and making it a priority. That's where therapy comes in. It's not just about dealing with problems, it's about finding what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you've tried therapy, you know how beneficial it can be. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's a tool for learning positive coping skills, setting boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of you. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part? You can switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. So whether it's finding that extra hour for yourself or embarking on a journey of self-discovery, therapy can be a game changer. Take the first step with BetterHelp and make your mental health a priority. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Reclaimed to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Reclaimed. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need and the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. With Lewis and Pink out of the picture, Mamie was a single mother. But that didn't mean she had to raise Emmett alone. Alma was like a second mother to Emmett. And Mamie had reconnected with her father. Her parents had separated when Mamie was 11 years old. But now, he was back in his daughter's life. Still, Mamie needed to support herself and Emmett. She worked at the Social Security Administration for a while, but wasn't sure if she had a future there. In her memoir, she wrote that her bosses often asked her to train new managers, but whenever Mamie asked for a promotion or a raise, she was told no. So she got a job as a clerk with the Air Force, where she often managed confidential files. 
all that responsibility meant she worked late hours. So Emmett helped out around the house. He would cook and even make sure the bills were paid. His cousin, Ollie Gordon, remembers this. He also uh, would keep the house tidy. He could do the laundry. So he was quite helpful in that aspect. She went out to work and he took on the role. And in some instances, you would always think that you would have expected an older person to do. So they had a really good relationship. And in some ways, she planned it this way. Her own mother never expected her to do much around the house, aside from a few chores. But Mamie raised her son differently. He was the man of the house, and she molded him that way. Mamie trusted Emmett with a lot, but she still let him be a child. On the weekends, his older cousins would take him to the amusement park, and he'd come home with a stomach full of caramel popcorn and hot dogs. Emmett was an only child, but it didn't feel that way. He was close with his cousins, especially Wheeler Parker, who was also his next-door neighbor. I was seven. He was he's two years younger than I am, so he's about five. So we, we right there from day one, we right there next to each other. Mamie wrote that Emmett idolized his cousin, and the two spent years biking around Argo and playing baseball with their other cousins and friends. She even described Emmett and his friends standing under a lamppost in the neighborhood, trying to doo-wop. Apparently, nobody could carry a tune, but it didn't stop them. In fact, unstoppable was an apt word when it came to Emmett. Wheeler Parker said he was a natural leader. He's a, <laughs> I, call him, I call him a typical Leo, no offense to Leo's, but you know, say Leo's got to be in charge. He, he, he's going to be in charge. No two ways about it. If he's there, innately, it was in him to be in charge. Mamie says this was a gift she gave her son. That confidence came from her belief in him. She had dreams for her son. She wanted Emmett to go to college, maybe even become a minister. It didn't matter that he had a stutter, which stemmed from a bout with polio. In fact, Emmett loved to talk, and he had a knack for it. Once, Emmett even convinced his mother to make amends with her own cousins after an argument over housework. It had gotten so bad that her cousins left to stay with other relatives. But Emmett pushed his mother to reconcile with them. She said he deserved a Nobel Peace Prize for those negotiations. But of course... There were moments when Emmett showed that he was still undeniably a child. And as a mother, Mamie needed to put her foot down. His ears. <laughs> his, he never liked to get his ears cleaned and washed. And his mom was a stinker for that. And to this day, I never could understand why that was such a big deal about washing his ears. But that was always a fight. She would allow him to go out, you know, in the neighborhood. But he never kind of came home when he was supposed to, you know, get engrossed in whatever was going on. So I can remember getting into the car. She had a little red car. I don't know what type of car it was red. And we would get in the car and ride around the neighborhood until she would find Emmett and then bring him in. That car, by the way, 
was a red 55 Plymouth with a white top. Mamie had put Emmett down as a co-signer. She wasn't going to let him drive that car, but she wanted to send her son a message. We're in this together. When Christmas arrived in 1954, Mamie was determined to make it extra special. It would be Emmett's 13th Christmas, and she was excited to host a special dinner at the apartment she shared with him. She bought a large spruce tree, one that was taller than Jean Mobley, who she was dating at the time. Jean dressed sharply, and Emmett wanted to be just like him. So the couple bought Emmett a whole ensemble. White dress shirt, black suit, tie, dress shoes. There's a photo of him wearing his new outfit on that day. He has one arm casually resting on top of a Philco television set. He looks dapper, and he knows it. Chris Benson again. That was actually Emmett's television set. And you think about that. That photo was taken at Christmas time in 1954. In 1954, of course, television was um, appearing in many households, but not one quite so impressive. Ollie Gordon remembers that photo. He's wearing a hat, leaning on the TV, and he got that hat for Christmas, and he loved that hat. I guess he never really had a grown-up like hat before. That day, the atmosphere in the house was very pleasant, very happy. Um, I don't remember a lot of music, but I'm sure we were singing something because Mrs. Mobley, she couldn't really play the piano, but she thought she could. And so we would uh, get a note or two here and there and we would, uh, you know, do the jingle bells. Mamie might not have been able to play the piano, but she sure knew how to cook. Emma's mother loved to make roasts and they were were delicious. There was uh, always a, a pot of greens or what we call pole beans or string beans. And however she seasoned them, the, the aroma was just uh, fantastic. There was always macaroni and cheese, baked sweet potatoes, you know, basic, good, healthy, soul food is what we had in that house. And there was one dish Ollie Gordon always reached for. Her rolls, <laughs> her homemade yeast rolls, they were so good. I hated to get my hands in the dough, but I love to smell them and I love to eat them. In her memoir, Mamie wrote, if Norman Rockwell had ever wanted to do a Black family Christmas portrait, he could have turned to us that holiday season. Picture perfect and ready to be framed on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. The interesting thing about that to me is not just that Emmett was middle class, but that his consciousness as a young black person in America was that there were no boundaries, that he could have everything he wanted, and that there were no limitations to his life. And what an incredible experience for a black child in the 1950s to have. And this is the attitude that ultimately he would carry to Mississippi. What Mamie thought of as the perfect Christmas would be the last one she'd spend with Emmett. That summer, Emmett's great-uncle, Mose Wright, came to visit. And that's when Emmett set his heart on Mississippi. He had heard so many stories about Mississippi 
and about the boundless terrain, right? The Mississippi uh, Delta and the fields that you could play in and the rivers you could fish in. Not only that, but Wheeler Parker, Emmett's idol, was heading down with Mose Wright, who was his grandfather. So he had to go. He insisted on going, even though his mother was uh, anxious about it. She was nervous about it. She knew the Mississippi Delta. And uh, having a son who was as energetic and uh, saw limitless possibilities, as Emmett did, worried her. So she at first told him he couldn't go. But Emmett was used to speaking up. And he made the case to his mother. Mose Wright's daughter, Thelma Wright, had lived with them before. If she was allowed to stay with family in another town, why couldn't Emmett do the same? And she relents. Uh, In the course of doing that, she wants to make sure that he's ready for all the things that she knows are going to pose a danger to him, a danger that flows from his very personality, right? As a precocious kid who knows no limitations, and she wants him to be ready for that. So she goes through the drill, the drill that many families go through with the kids they send back south for a couple of weeks of summer vacation with their families. It's a conversation Black mothers have struggled with for years. Trying to find the right words is nearly impossible because the words aren't right. How do you teach your child that they can be anything that they want and then warn them to play small at the same time, to shrink themselves? Yes, these conversations protect the child, but the words also strip them of their freedom their innocence, their confidence. Mamie told Emmett to only talk to a white person if they talked to him first and to respond with deference. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. To always put a button on it, as she said. Uh, If there is a sidewalk and he's walking down the sidewalk and a white person is approaching him to step off of the sidewalk, if he should offend a white person in any way, to fall to his knees and to uh, beg for forgiveness, to humble himself, in other words. And she went through this repeatedly. Emmett kind of brushed it off and said, it can't possibly be that bad down there. And she said, well, it's worse. It's worse than that. And you have to get it in your head to make sure that you do these things in order to survive. assured her that he understood. Uh, but as um, she said in reflecting on it, you know, how could you possibly give a crash course in race hatred to a child who's known only love? August 20th arrived, the day that Emmett's train would leave. Mamie was supposed to take him to the station, but they were running late. And you can't help but think that Some of that might have been purposeful with maybe a lot of last minute preparations to get him together, not only to to finish uh, packing, but also to get his box lunch that he would take with him to the train. She had packed some chicken, cake, and other treats in a shoebox. When she was a child, her own mother packed something similar for her when she made trips to the South. Mamie and Emmett decided to meet Wheeler Parker and Mose Wright at a different station. The train was already there when they arrived. It was time to say goodbye. Emmett started heading to the train, but she called out to him, asking for a kiss. 
He took his watch off and gave it to his mother just before he left and said he wouldn't need the watch where he was going. He didn't need to know the time of day. And why would he? He was going on an adventure. Emmett had stories to tell his cousins about life in Chicago. Mamie gave him his father's ring before the trip, and he wanted to show it to them. Wheeler Parker said Emmett was so excited that he couldn't stay still on the train. My grandfather had trouble getting Emmett to sit down and stay in one place. He all over the place, you know. He had excited and he had a lot of fun on the train. But Chris Benson said Mamie was restless in a different way. There's no way to stop him from making this trip. And she's beginning to um, consider uh, all the ways that she might have already failed her son. Did I say enough to him? Did I prepare him for what's going to happen down there? Is he going to be safe? Uh, Is there something I could have done that I didn't do? Is there something I should do now? And she's suffering uh, from this anxiety. As the train left the station, she started to feel weak. The reality of this two-week visit to the Delta is beginning to, to set in with her. And she has his watch now. So she's looking at the watch periodically, and it's their connection, right? Uh, It's in some ways his heartbeat. Uh, And she sees the minutes ticking off. She knows how long it takes to get from one point in this trip to the next point, to all the train stops along the way. And she she can sort of bond with her son right at all those points along the the way and know when he has finally arrived in Mississippi. The next thing I remember is that Emma's mother, she was always healthy, but she she got ill. Ollie Gordon again. There was no reason for her illness. She was actually so weak that she couldn't get out the bed. She was just she just suddenly just lost energy. She just had this weight, as I heard my mother would say, a heavy weight on her. In her memoir, Mamie says she felt like something had been ripped from her. She found herself watching the time as the watch on her wrist ticked. As every minute went by, she felt worse. Time wanted to reveal something, but she wasn't sure what. Was it just that she missed Emmett? Or was it something deeper? A mother's intuition, maybe, that something was coming for her child and she wouldn't be there to stop it. She knew something was wrong before she got the phone call. The call came early Sunday morning, eight days after Emmett left for Mississippi. Emmett had been taken from his home by a group of men. His great aunt and uncle begged them not to, but it didn't matter. Emmett was put into a truck and disappeared into the night. The men forced the young boy to carry a 75-pound cotton gin fan to the Tallahatchie River. They made him strip down. Then they beat him within an inch of his life. They gouged out his eye, shot him, and threw his lifeless body into the river. The fan he carried was tied around his neck with barbed wire. 
He was found three days later by a fisherman. All while Mamie was still at home. The days, weeks, and months after Emmett's death would change the way Mamie viewed the world. And that transformation began when she saw her son for the last time. I had never seen anything so horrible in my life. She wanted people to know this is what my child looked like. This is the child I sent down to Mississippi just a week before he was murdered. This child, and this is what I have now that I'm left with. In the next episode of Reclaimed, the story of Mamie Till Mobley. Reclaimed, the story of Mamie Till Mobley, is a production of ABC Audio and a companion podcast to the ABC News docuseries, Let the World See, which is streaming on Hulu. Written and produced by Lakia Brown, Susie Liu, Carrie Ann Thomas, and Madeline Wood, with help from Marwa Mowaki and Iru Ekpunobi. Music and mixing by Evan Viola. Jean Marie Condon of Cobble Hill Films and Fatima Curry are story consultants. They were also the directors of Let the World See. Our executive producer is Liz Alessi. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Deshishku. Some sound effects were used to recreate historical scenes. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think with a rating and a review. People who disappear without a trace. The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.